Welcome to a very crypto-focused episode of Plugged In. I'm your host, Al Dominic. I'm rolling solo from our Scottsdale studios, but really not going to be lonely for conversation because I have Ian Andrews, the CMO of the blockchain data platform company Chainalysis, that is just doing some incredible work on behalf of government agencies, financial institutions, and cryptocurrency businesses around the world to engage with the, the crypto scene. Ian, it is awesome to see you. Al, I, I got to say, when we discussed doing this, it was before the whole FTX meltdown, but like you picked a week to have crypto as the topic on your show. Like you nailed it. Uh, it is it is the thing everybody's talking about this week, for sure. You got to love dumb Irish luck. <laughs> Just when you think, you know, your dumbest smart has gone out of vogue, it comes back into style. So we appreciate you taking a little bit of time just to share your thoughts and perspectives on what's taking place, because you're right. Everyone is talking about what's happening in this DeFi world of ours. So a little uh, advanced notice. I have five different artists that I pulled to give some uh, flavor to our conversation. I'm going to use some songs to keep our conversation going. Instead of surprising you at each point where I bring up an artist, I'm just going to tell you, I've got Fatboy Slim, Annie Lennox, Nirvana, Tears for Fear, and Michael Buble it, it feels as our, as our cruise guides today. It feels like you hit my, my uh, 90s into early 2000s playlist right there. I love, I love all five of those. Let's go. We're off to a great start because Fatboy Slim has a song that starts, we've come a long, long way together through the hard times and the good. I have to celebrate you, baby. I have to praise you like I should. So I'd like you to give our listeners just the cliff notes on what it takes to build the company that you're a part of. It's growing while many in the DeFi space are falling apart. Well, Chainalysis, for those that aren't familiar, we're a software company. We build technology that enables customers all around the world, now over a thousand customers in about 75 countries, to understand what's happening on public blockchains. So if you're familiar with Bitcoin or Ethereum, you might know that all that transactional data is public. You know, often it's called a public ledger, but that information, just because it's public, isn't necessarily easy to read for humans like you and me. And that's what Chainalysis does. And so our customers are all the companies that are uh, building businesses in the world of, of decentralized or centralized finance and participating in, in cryptocurrency ecosystem, as well as all the government agencies that are necessary to make that system work fairly and efficiently. So financial regulators, tax authorities, law enforcement, uh, some national security and defense organizations, they're all our customers using technology in order to, to do their jobs better, protect their customers, uh, and try and make cryptocurrency a little bit more trusted and safer uh, for, for everybody. So when I think of Ian's company, it essentially boils down to how do you trace and understand blockchain activity? And as you mentioned, we've had some uh, currency challenges where some high-flying organizations are not as high and mighty as they once were. So when I talk Annie Lennox, her song, No More I Love You, really relates to the current state of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You know, that hashtag FUD comes into play because FTX's collapse has thrown a even colder blanket on top of existing skepticism around the crypto space. So as balance sheets are being picked apart, 
talk a little bit about the current state of crypto as Chainalysis sees it. Yeah, I think a, a couple thoughts here. And, and first, I want to disclose that FTX has actually retained our company as part of the bankruptcy process to hopefully assist in in returning as as much funds as as possible to people that experience losses as a result of that collapse. So I, I can't comment in detail on the mechanics there, but I will say, one, terrible situation. Two, not so much specific to crypto. Uh, like if we just look back a few years in finance generally, we can find cases that look a lot like FTX. MF Global is one that that uh, comes to mind that I've heard a couple of people reference lately, where large organization, charismatic CEO ended up getting uh, maybe out in front of themselves from a leverage perspective pretty far and ended up you know, evaporating a lot of customer funds. So not in any way excusing what happened here in FTX, but I think it's important perspective that in the crypto industry, the goal was always to move away from opaque, non-transparent organizations with broad control over funds that enable the type of greedy activity that we saw bring down FTX. And, and somehow, even though the original spirit of crypto was, was that decentralization, complete transparency, we ended up with a really big organization doing a lot of off-balance sheet and certainly off-blockchain stuff that, uh, that was, you know, apparently from everything we know now, you know, highly illegal. And so I think we've, we've lost a lot of trust in the potential of crypto. Like that's the state of the industry. And it's, it's unfortunate. Because there's a lot of really smart people out there. I, ha- I have a podcast. I've spent the last four or five months interviewing people who are committed to building a better financial system and leveraging the technology you know, that powers cryptocurrency ecosystems to build some really exciting products and services. All those people are now having to explain, hey, why can they be trusted uh, in the face of, of you know, this one person that kind of drove this massive fraud? But I'll be honest with you, I still believe in the potential, right? I, I think we have the opportunity to go beyond this, but we've got to work on the trust side. We've got to absolutely work on the transparency side. And and I think we'll see a lot of people start moving towards more decentralization. We've actually seen some of these trend lines in our data where people are pulling funds off of centralized exchanges and maybe back to some of the original spirit of the, the cryptocurrency movement from the early days. Yeah, I, I shouldn't bury the lead. I, like Ian, remain bullish on the future, especially of the blockchain technologies that are being built really on the back of regulated institutions. I think about uh, accounting, reporting, insurance, lending and payments, asset management, the real estate sector. There's incredible opportunity to apply what's taking place and is being developed. And it starts with the people Ian mentions. Over the last few years, there's been just an incredible amount of hiring world-class, sophisticated, intelligent, creative people into the blockchain sector. If you start with the people, then you can build your products. Once you have your people and products, your financial performance usually follows. So we do have some examples of not bad actors, but just bad decision-making, taking down some public trust at the moment. Yes, history can be littered with innovations that never met their full potential, but I think the underlying blockchain technologies still are pretty impressive 
And we're just scratching the surface on how certain organizations are going to try to leverage them. So this is where I want to talk with you about Nirvana's song, Come As You Are, As You Were, As I Want You To Be. Because two big areas for financial institutions today center around authentication and identification. And I think those are areas that blockchain technology can really help accelerate. What's your take on those two areas of opportunity? I I think it's the biggest use case for blockchain after cryptocurrency. And, And just context for people that maybe haven't spent any time thinking about this yet. Today, if I want to do anything that requires, you know, proof of of some attribute of me, I end up giving up my entire identity. If you go to a a, a bar or a liquor store, you need to validate you're 21. But in order to validate I'm 21, I give the person on the other side of the counter uh, my home address, my birth date, uh, a bunch of other information that's kind of unnecessary to meet that that test. Now that's kind of a silly example. But you think about in the context of uh, the financial system in the United States, uh, we have this accredited investor rule to do things like buy equity in private companies. And really, that's a, that's a means test. It's, it's sort of a minimum threshold of liquid assets. It's not, are you smart enough? Do you understand the industry well? You know, are you actually going to be successful with your investment strategy? It's none of that. It's like, how much money do you have in your bank account? But in order to do that, you fill out a long form, you give up your entire identity, you have to assert that every time you want to do an investment. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like that model is is kind of cumbersome. And if we start to look into uh, actual trading and exchange, like if you've ever opened a bank account, again, you're giving up all this information. It, It doesn't seem like it's actually necessary in the digital age in which we live. And so there's some really interesting work being done that is using the cryptographic proof and the public nature of the blockchain to be able to assert portions of your identity. Could be things as as significant as your age, right, to get to get into the liquor store, or as meaningful as you know your liquid asset holdings for that accredited investor rule, or it could be things like the university you went to school at. Right. UNC could say, yeah, Ian, in fact, did graduate. And rather than calling up the registrar's office, I can carry a digital token that then allows me to access a particular community or user group or, you know, invest in a particular platform in the case of that that accredited investor rule. And so I think, um, you know, good examples here are, are organizations like Circle have built something called Verity, which allows me to to. Uh, go through a KYC or know your customer process with them, prove that I'm a real human. But then they issue me a digital token that allows me to go participate in a DeFi protocol where my identity actually isn't known to the other investors that I may be uh, going in with, or even the, the investment company that's facilitating that exchange but they know that I am legitimate to the point of, of what's you know, required from a regulated compliance perspective. And I think we're going to see more and more of this over time. So I loved your example of going to UNC to prove that you graduated as highly decorated as I know you were. Um, <laughs> if I went to Washington Lee, they'd probably give a little scrap of paper and say, yes, he was here. Uh, but when I think of the potential applications of the technology, 
This is where NFTs and NTTs become really interesting. The non-transferable token could realistically be your college diploma that lives with you. You're never going to give that to your wife or to your kids as a memento. Yes, it's great that you can rock the swag, but ultimately that's your accomplishment that you're able to show. And as you were talking, I flash back to a conversation I was a part of with Mike Cagney a few weeks ago. Mike, for listeners, is the founder of SoFi. He's currently running a company called Figure Technologies that's doing some pretty interesting things on the blockchain. Uh, I believe provenance is associated with Figure. But I made a note that blockchain technology is doing something really well right now. And we shouldn't lose sight of that with all the crypto stuff. Essentially, you're able to displace trust with truth. So you might have a native digital asset. It, in it, you can understand its composition, its history. You're not relying on others, which allows two parties to transact in a bilateral fashion without taking on an intermediary. And so that counterparty settlement risk is something that he made note of. It's the friction that causes some headache and tension that could be replaced without losing sight of the truth behind the asset you have. And so, again, transacting without an intermediary is one of those longer-term applications that people are getting excited about. And I think that's where investment continues to, to move towards. So the crypto and the tokens, those essentially are proofs of concept that show things work. So you can be bullish or bearish on the potential value of your Ethereum at the moment, but you shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it shows a, a smart contract concept is in production. Am yeah, I looking I, at that the right way, Ian? I, I think you are. I mean, the Providence team is doing some really interesting stuff in this area of the industry term is RWA or real world assets then being transacted on chain as tokens. And it, it's an interesting shift from what most of the hype cycle over the last few years in crypto has been about, which is kind of this retail boom. Right, I can, I can buy some Shibu Inu, and it's it's up only, and and I'll be able to sell it and make a small profit. I mean, that's been a lot of the use case, and I think actually led to a good amount of skepticism. The long term value here is much more complex financial transactions, connectivity to real world assets, and that that ends up becoming an institutional, uh, I think, valuable for institutions and and valuable specifically for the thing you called out. Uh, elimination of some of the the uh, middlemen, facil transaction facilitators, uh, and the costs associated with that uh, seems to me like a huge opportunity for improvement uh, in the the efficiency of the overall operations of the financial system. I agree. Uh, Ian's bringing out a lot of words and terminology that may not be familiar to many listeners. That's okay. It wasn't familiar to me. I sat down with Ian maybe a year, year plus ago. We were talking about the wallets that we use to hold our currency. He introduced me to MetaMask, to the Brave browser. I mean, this is a guy that really has his hand on the wheel of where this industry is driving towards, which is why I want to use Tears for Fear. And their idea that everybody wants to rule the world as a springboard for his take on crypto regulation, because as much as we want to disintermediate and we want to reduce friction, I think there's a growing appreciation that a level playing field benefits all parties. Right now, it strikes me in the United States alone, there's at least six different 
organizations and regulatory bodies that are really jostling for control on the future of just crypto. I'm curious your take on what's taking place in the world of regulation. Well, I, there's there's good and bad. Uh, on on one end, we have efforts like what's going on in Europe, uh, which is called the the Markets in uh, Cryptocurrency Act or MICA, and and MICA is doing some really important things. First, it's setting up a unified framework for regulation across the entire EU. So if you operate in one jurisdiction and you're licensed there, that gives you you know, similar license to operate across all member states in the EU. So that kind of encourages people to operate in the regulated regime, not to set up offshore. It simplifies the level of effort for what in many cases are startup businesses um, or people entering the market, you know, with without a large and going business. It also starts to tackle, you know, some of the things like stable coins, where there's been questions about what backs a stable coin. Is it is it truly pegged? We saw a pretty epic collapse of the Terra Luna ecosystem and tens of billions of dollars of value kind of wiped out in a very short period of time earlier this year, where that turned out not to be the case. So Europe's really leading at the forefront of of I think regulatory clarity. Uh, in the U.S., you're right. There's there's sort of different uh, different organizations asserting different levels of control on different aspects, and I think it makes it really hard for businesses who want to operate legitimately in the in the U.S. sector. It, everybody that we talk to is clamoring for uh, this this mythical regulatory clarity. Uh, I think they just want a fair fair and consistent playbook, at least from the cryptocurrency side. But actually, the the traditional finance folks that I've talked to as well, they they want that same thing. Like they want to participate in the market and they see a ton of uncertainty that they just can't digest for what is an emerging and would be a relatively small part of their business in the near term to get past that. You know, and, and there's a handful of banks who have Bank of New York Mellon sort of famously, the the folks at Signature and Silvergate, they they are operating in the world of crypto. Uh, they're, you know, in case of BNY, taking posits as a digital assets custodian. Uh, Silvergate and Signature have both developed, you know, the ability to bank crypto businesses. So I don't want to give the impression that it's it's possible, but I I have the sense that there is pent up demand, even following the the FTX collapse this week where they see a market opportunity, they see a, an undeniable trend and, and kind of modernization of the financial system that will happen around blockchain. And they just need, they need the SEC and the CFTC and Congress to get together and clear up some of the questions around the edges right now. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a nice moment to remind the naysayers around crypto, this is not the time to take your victory lap just because some of this is hitting the fan doesn't mean the investments that have been made and will continue to be made will not drive this industry and really the economy forward in ways that we won't be able to predict. We won't be able to maybe manipulate as we would like, but these things are happening and to ignore them should be done at your own peril. So Ian and I are kind of nicely set up for this conversation. We're inside, it's, it's toasty and warm, but outside the weather's a changing. And I'm tempted 
to give Mariah Carey and her Christmas album the last laugh for this podcast. But instead, I'm going to go with the soothing sounds of Michael Buble. And as he sings, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas in this crypto winter of ours. Is there anything that bankers should be talking about around the holiday table that maybe they aren't right now? Uh, I, I would point to two things. One, uh, if you look at the stablecoin market, there's a couple interesting companies there. One is, is Circle. Their project, USDC, uh, the second largest stablecoin by, by issued volume, you know, about $44, $45 billion sitting on their balance sheet. Paxos is another one who is a, a digital asset custodian, also a stablecoin issuer. There's about $26 billion. Those are two U.S. companies, highly regulated, you know, operating in the U.S. If I'm sitting in traditional finance, that's a very interesting cu- potential customer uh, that I would, I would be working hard to figure out how do I bank them and the companies that will come along in the future that look like that. So that would be one. And I think the other one, you touched on Providence and the work they're doing on connecting real-world assets into tokenized assets that can be exchanged on-chain, that process seems like it's only accelerating. Uh, I think it's coming to real estate. I think it's coming to all sorts of other structured financial products. Uh, I know DTCC is working on some things. Australian Stock Exchange is also working on similar things in this area. And and those projects are only going to accelerate. and, And I would be working hard to figure out how, how you participate and can build uh, lines of business around those. Well, look, as people start to get their arms around some of the bigger concepts that Ian surfaced, I'm going to ask him to you know really plug some of the good work that Chainalysis is putting out. Anything that folks should be paying attention to on your end? Well, if you're interested in you know what are people actually doing with crypto besides speculating on some of these altcoins, we just published uh, a, a report that we do every year called the geography of cryptocurrency adoption. And we went around the world and and looked at true grassroots. So not, you know, big institutional money or or uh, highly leveraged traders, but everyday people around the world doing interesting stuff with crypto. There's some great stories in there. I think it it paints uh, a much more interesting than than we're seeing in the media right now. Look at the legitimacy of of the technology and the impact it can have on people. So I would go check that out. Also, if you're interested in uh, in you know what's going on in the world of cybersecurity and kind of nation state actors, because that's the other the other side of this, right? We've got Russian cyber criminals and North Korean hackers who are are working hard uh, to to compromise you know big companies all around the world and and certainly steal digital assets. Uh, we do a lot of work in that space and. And uh, we've got some great content on that that we can share probably in the show notes. So this is uh, just another incredible resource that we really appreciate bringing to this particular episode of Plugged In. As mentioned, he's Ian Andrews. I'm Al Dominic. We'll be putting this music list up for our shadow Spotify playlist as quick as we can. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.